So we're in uh, Genesis 15. We're going to look at verses 1 through 6, really some of the most important verses in all the Word of God. The topic there is this. Abraham is told to look up at the stars and know that his descendants will be as innumerable as they are. The title of our message, Glancing with the Stars. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you so much for your word. When we come to your word, Lord, in times like this, first of all, we, of course, depend on the Holy Spirit to be our teacher, uh, his indwelling presence and his manifest presence in this place to take the word of God and apply it to our hearts and lives. And what we're really looking for, Lord, of course, is to see Jesus revealed in the scripture We look into the mirror of the Word, Lord, and there we see Jesus. And each time we do, we want to see Him a little clearer, a little sharper, because You're conforming us and changing us into His image, and we need to know what that image is. And so this morning, Lord, as You describe Yourself as a shield and an exceedingly great reward, I pray that our hearts would take all of that in, Lord, and be filled with the wonder of the knowledge of Your love. We pray in Jesus' name, and those who agreed said, Amen. A lot of great songs about friendship. Some of you have been emailing me your favorites, those of you who are on the transcript list. Right now, my favorite, of course, you've got a friend in me, Fast Friends, Woody and Buzz. I mean, they just do anything for each other through three movies and other sequels. Uh, Randy Newman's song, As the years go by, our friendship will never die. You're going to see it's our destiny. You've got a friend in me. I've... Fought the urge to sing that together with you, but uh, we're, we're past that now. We can move on, all right? I wonder if God and Abraham had a friendship song. It sounds funny, but I've been struck by the fact that Abraham alone in the Word of God three times is called the friend of God. If God emphasized that friendship, if he wants to go on record saying, Abraham is my friend forever, then we ought to pay close attention to it, especially since Jesus will go on to tell his disciples in the New Testament that we are to consider ourselves his friends. And so we need to learn what this means, this friendship with God. The text before us reeks of friendship material. Abraham and God talk to each other honestly and intimately the way only the best of friends can. I want to be free to talk to God as my friend the way Abraham and God talk together. And so I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, God is your friend and he asks you to count his blessings. And number two, God is your friend and he accounted to you his righteousness. Let's take a look, first of all, in verses one through five, where we count our blessings. Now, really, if you didn't know who was talking and you just had some of the dialogue here, you'd conclude that this was a conversation between old friends. They are old friends, 10 years into their relationship. It's a conversation exemplary of the intimacy and the honesty we can have talking to God. And so verse 1, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Don't be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. God initiated this conversation. He approached Abraham in his time of fear. While we talk about important spiritual disciplines like having regular devotions and spending uh, set times in prayer, don't neglect to realize that the Lord is also seeking you. He wants to begin conversations with you. He will approach you often 
and gently. Perhaps we aren't always listening for the Lord. We have it in mind that we're going to spend time with Him. He's waiting for us. He's always there. Those things are true. But often in the Scriptures, you'll start to notice, it is God who comes to the one that He loves. It is God who initiates the conversation. In this case, God sees the, the, the situation in Abraham's heart and He comes to him before Abram even calls on him. It says, The word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. That seems to mean that God spoke to Abraham in a waking vision. He saw the Lord. He heard the Lord's voice. It was likely a pre-incarnation appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. Before Jesus came as God in human flesh, there are appearances in the Old Testament, sometimes called the angel of the Lord or the messenger of the Lord, sometimes called the captain of the host of the Lord. Uh, likely, they, uh, this was one of those theophanies or Christophanies, they're called uh, officially. Now, Abraham had just won a great victory over marauding kings who had taken his nephew Lot captive. He'd also won a great spiritual victory by refusing to take the material reward offered to him by the king of Sodom. He didn't want to be corrupted by that reward or bring despite to the name of God. The result of his great victories was fear. That's interesting to me. It tells me that the result of spiritual victory can sometimes be fear. Maybe I wonder if God is really going to come through next time. I found this to be true. You know, God comes through. You wonder, God, are you going to come through? Then he comes through and then you wonder if he's going to come through the next time. We're so frail. We're so uh, fragile in that way. Whatever was going on with Abraham in terms of what, was, you know, what he was exactly thinking about the Lord, he was afraid. After this great victory, he was afraid. And so God comes and says, do not be afraid. He knew the heart of his friend. God knows your heart. Your fears, your stresses, your worries, your anxieties. We don't like to admit as Christians that we have any of those. Because, of course, we're told to be anxious for nothing. And not to worry, to cast all our cares upon Him for He cares for us. But, you know, all of that presupposes that you have some cares to cast. I can't cast my cares upon Him if I have no cares to cast. Peter Piper. No, anyway. I have cares, I have worries, you have stresses, you have anxieties. God wants to deal with them, certainly. But we have to start just by being honest about them. And so Abraham was afraid. And God knew his friend's heart and he came to him and he said, don't be afraid. God knows your fears and stresses and anxieties. He sees them all. And he wants to come to you and comfort you. And you know what? He wants to do that right now. A lot of times we're, you know, we're in church, we're listening to this being taught and we're thinking about other things. We're wondering if our phone really is on vibrate and am I going to say something if your phone rings and will it be funny or caustic and, you know, those kinds of things. But, you know, but really, you know, the Lord, he's talking to you right now. Did you come in here with a fear? Are you anxious? Do you worry? Are you stressed out? Then the Lord wants to deal with that right now. This is His word to you right now. Don't be afraid. And He'll go on to reveal more of Himself to you. So what are you afraid of today? Let God deal with it. Let Him alleviate it. Now God told Abraham, I am your shield. You only need a shield if you're being assaulted by dangers and devils. Think about it. I mean, a shield isn't a decorative shield. It's not a small shield. God says, I am your shield. It's like, you know, body armor. But you only need that if you're under attack. 
And so God is promising Abraham that he'd have more trouble in the world, but also promising him that he would be a sufficient shield to protect him. You Lord of the Rings fans, remember in the first movie, The Fellowship of the Ring, the cave troll speared Frodo to the ground. Everybody thought he was dead. Should have killed him. But underneath his clothing, he was wearing that mithril coat of chain mail. And it saved his life. And that's sort of how I see the shield God has promised us. I'm going to get speared. I'm going to get attacked. But I'll be fine so long as I have the shield of faith to see me through. Now God next told Abraham, I am your exceedingly great reward. Abraham had just refused a great material reward from the king of Sodom. God was here promising him an exceedingly great spiritual reward for sure. But he wasn't just telling him that it's coming in the future. I like to think about my future reward, don't you? I mean, every time I have to do maintenance on my house, I think about my house in heaven that Jesus is building. I don't think, no termites. I won't have to paint it. I don't think I'm going to have to sweep. (laughs) The wheel's not going to fall off of my pool sweep. You know, those kinds of things. No weed. I mean, it's going to be really cool. Plus, it's going to have all the things that I would like to have in a house that just speak to, you know, my personality. I I used to think you'd have an espresso maker in every room. (laughs) But I think it's going to have one of those Star Trek things where you just speak, you know, and say, latte hot mocha, you know, and there it'll be. But whatever. I mean, so the rewards are coming. But God doesn't just, God doesn't just say, I'm going to give you a reward. He says, I am your exceedingly great reward. He was telling Abraham, the great reward in life, the, the thing that really will fulfill you is to have a relationship with me. Now, we understand this. Even this side of heaven, because we, we are rewarded in relationships that we have right now on the earth marriage is to be a rewarding relationship and when we follow god's plan for our lives individually and are filled with the spirit marriage is a great reward Uh, children are a reward to us even though sometimes they can be difficult Uh, what a great thing it is to have and to raise children grandchildren are maybe the greatest reward at this point in my life. I love my grandchildren. I always talk about them. And, and I, it's just, you know, biblical to spoil them. And to, it's, I, I, I don't want to do it, but I have to do it. I, I, you know, I, I wish I could discipline them, but I just can't. I look at, I look at them and I say, yeah, I'm done with that. I did that. I, I, my spanking arm is gone. You know, I gave away the paddle. It's gone. So, you know, and so, but there's a, such a great reward. And, you know, you, I, I don't know if it's a picture on your desk or on your iPhone or your, you know, less than iPhone or whatever. Uh, but, you know, I, I mean, if, you, if you're really, if you, don't you, if you're down and things aren't going well and, you know, things aren't coming together. I mean, you just think, God, oh, there's my, there's my grandson. There's my granddaughter, my, my son, my daughter. There's my wife. These are the people that reward my life, that make life mean. And then God comes and he says, Gene, I am your exceedingly great reward. I'm responsible for all those people. I gave you all those people. I brought them into your life. And I'm in your life. I saved your life. And you begin to understand the depth and the breadth and the, the, the spaciousness, I would say, of this relationship with God. And so he said, Abram, I'm your reward. But Abram said, verse 2, Lord God, What will you give me, seeing I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? 
Then Abram said, look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. Abraham did not want any great material reward for following the Lord. He only wanted what God had promised him from the beginning. He only wanted a son to inherit the land God was showing him. I think we sometimes act like the TV detective Columbo. Remember Columbo? He'd be leaving and then he'd turn around and say, oh, one more thing. And so, you know, the Lord does, he does these, you know, he, he saved me, for example, use my own life. He saved me and saved my marriage and did all these amazing things in my life. And it's not that I shouldn't ask the Lord for things, but I can get to a point where I'm just, now I'm dissatisfied. I'm not really excited about my life. And I think, Lord, you know, if you would just give me this one more thing. This one thing, it's a spiritual thing, Lord. You know, I've gotten out of the material aspect of it. I, you know, the, I'm not going to ever have a Corvette, so that's just, I know that. I don't really like Corvettes. I just, I know you do. I want a 64 Malibu. But anyway, um, so, you know, but in, even in the spiritual dimension, anything, Lord, if you would just do this, you know, just one more thing. But Abraham, he wasn't like that. He said, Lord, I just want you to do the one thing that you told me you were going to do. From a human standpoint, it seemed too late for God to fulfill his promise. He and Sarah were old and getting to the place where they really couldn't have children anymore. Abraham needed to learn that God would only fulfill his promises miraculously. God wasn't going to give them Isaac until it was humanly impossible. God had something to show them and to show the world through them about spiritual birth. Never forget you are on display. God wants to show you and to show the world through you something miraculous, something only he can get the credit for. If there's nothing ever about my life or your life that causes somebody to say, something's going on there that's not just human, not just natural. If somebody can look at me, for example, and say, well, I can see, you know, you, you did this and you got education and you took this class and you went to this training and you did. And so I can see everything about your life makes sense to me based on, you know, the letters after your name or the school you went to or all of these things. I can see how a human being could accomplish everything that you accomplished. Then God's not in the equation and God, he wants to be in the equation. And that's why Paul, the apostle in the New Testament says, man, God takes the weak, the base the off-scouring of the world. He takes people that you would never think he could use and he uses those people so that people will say, wow, what, what's going on there? Peter, the Apostle Peter, dumb dirt fisherman. And I, I, I mean that in the, in the nicest possible way because they looked at those guys after the resurrection and they said, what's up with these guys? How can they preach the gospel like this? And, and what is going on? These are just men, you know, uneducated men, but they've been with Jesus. And God wants that in your life. He, he wants people really to look at your life and say, You? But you've been with Jesus. I guess that makes the difference. And, you know, maybe, maybe all the time, maybe some of the time, but there's got to be something in my life to, that people look at and say, I know that's not you. It's got to be God. And so Abraham, for his part, he'd already begun scheming, trying to figure out a way to accomplish the miraculous. Maybe Eleazar was going to be his heir. Too much of what passes for the work of God today is some Eleazar born in our own plans and not in the power of God. We look at something, we want something to happen, maybe God's even promised us something, and we think, well, it's not happening, it's certainly not happening in my timing, I can make this happen. I, I can bring something in that will make this happen. And God would say, no, that's like Eleazar 
I don't want Eleazar to be the heir. I have Isaac in mind. I'm going to do something miraculous. So hard to wait on the Lord. Verse 4. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Are you okay with God crushing your plans when you present your Eleazar and God says, Yeah, no, that's not what we're going to do at all. I hope we always listen to the Lord when he does that. It's just so hard to wait, especially as you get older. Abraham was getting older, and I I had to admit, I'm not as old as Abraham, but I'm getting older. And there are things that I would like to see happen, spiritual things, and I think, Lord, these are, are they ever going to happen? I mean, you've done great things, but are they ever going to happen? And you you do, you start thinking of ways to to encourage that, and you just have to wait on the Lord. Verse 5, then he brought him outside and said, look now toward heaven and count the stars if you're able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. This conversation was occurring in Abraham's tent, apparently. And God said, hey, let's go outside. I want to show you something. This is a reason why I think this is a real appearance of Jesus and not just a vision in Abraham's mind. Because they physically moved outside together to look up at the night sky. Abraham's descendants would be as numerous as the stars. In other places, God compared them to the sand of the sea and to the dust of the earth. As the Bible unfolds, you come to understand that God was referring first to the physical descendants of Abraham, the Israelites, but more to the spiritual descendants of Abraham, all those throughout all generations from all ethnic groups who would be saved by believing on Jesus Christ. They are all descended, as it were, from Abraham uh, because of what we'll learn in verse 6. And God was going to give Abraham one son and then through him innumerable descendants. Do I really believe that God can multiply my life in terms of its long-term effect? Now, I look at people like Billy Graham. Obviously, he's affected a lot of people. Do I think I'm less of a Christian than him? Do you? Well, the truth is you can't see the effect of your life, of your Christian life. You really could be affecting a lot more people than you realize. Have you ever heard of a guy named Mordecai Ham? The place to begin talking about him is with another guy you may not have heard of, Edward Kimball. How many of you have heard of Edward Kimball? If you've read some Christian biographies, you might know that he's the Sunday school teacher in Chicago in the late 19th century who led a 17-year-old to faith in Jesus Christ, D.L. Moody. As an evangelist, Moody would go on to share Christ. It's estimated, I checked this with several sources, 100 million people, all before modern technology. Great revivals and meetings that uh, Moody would hold in America and in England and all over the world. A hundred million people. Moody would influence a London pastor, F.B. Meyer. As the years went by, Meyer influenced J. Wilbur Chapman, who influenced Billy Sunday, who influenced Mordecai Ham, who led Billy Graham to faith in Jesus Christ. And so all over that, you've got multiplication going on. Because one guy who taught a Sunday school class one day had a burden to go and meet with a 17-year-old shoe salesman and make sure that he understood the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that started this whole chain of events. You and I really are in that kind of mathematical flow when it comes to God. We can count on Him to bless us. Meanwhile, He is your closest friend and He shields you and will be your exceedingly great reward. It's a win-win situation. Now, verse 6, God is your friend, and He accounted to you His righteousness. In these six verses, for the first time in the Bible, two absolutely striking phrases occur. One, the word of the Lord came. 
We take that for granted. By the time you get to the minor prophets, it's all over the place. The word of the Lord came. The word of the Lord came. This is the first time it appears in the Bible. And fear not. Wow. How many times have you heard that fear not and been blessed? But this is the first time. So a number of firsts. Also for the first time, the Lord is described as a shield. I think if Abraham and God had a song, it would be, Thou, O Lord, art a shield about me. Wouldn't that be a great buddy song for God and Abraham? Besides that... One incredibly important word occurs for the first time. It is the word believe. You sit there and you think, ah, that must have occurred sooner than this. No, this is the first occurrence. There are commentators who would argue that verse 6 by itself is the most important verse in all the Old Testament because in it you learn exactly how a man is brought into a relationship of being the friend of God. Or we would say it is how a man or a woman is saved. And he believed in the Lord And he accounted it to him for righteousness. What is righteousness? In its most basic biblical meaning, it is to be right with God. It's to be able to stand in the presence of God without guilt and without fear. Now the Bible tells me what I already know. There is no one righteous, not even one, in all the human race that can stand in the presence of God because all have sinned and therefore fall short of the righteousness to stand in God's presence. I'm further told that the end result of my sin is death. Not just a physical death, as bad as that is, but an eternal separation from God being deservedly punished for my sin in a real place that we know as hell. Are there works of righteousness I can do to earn a right standing with God and avoid going to hell? Well, no, there aren't. All my good works will always fall short of God's standard of righteousness, which is nothing short of absolute internal and external perfection. All my thoughts and words and deeds would need to be perfect from conception throughout my entire life. And even the most arrogant individual would have to admit that that's not possible. So how then did Abraham become the friend of God? How was he saved? It says here he believed in the Lord And he accounted it to him for righteousness. This word accounted, it's a bookkeeping term. It means to credit or to put into your account. Think of it like this. You have a spiritual account in heaven. There are books there and you have a spiritual account. If you were to look at your account, check your account, check its balance, all you'd see there is sin and lots of it. You could check it a few minutes from now and there'd be even more. And, and, you know, you just before you come to know Christ, if you check your heavenly bank account, if you could have an app that did that, you would find sin, not one iota of righteousness. But here God tells you he can make a deposit into your account. He can credit you with put into your account righteousness. He can and he will gift it to you. All you have to do to receive this gift of righteousness, it says, is believe in the Lord. That's it. While it's not easy to believe, that's all you must do. And it's all you can do. There's no other way to be made right with God. How is this righteousness credited to you? 2 Corinthians 5.21 For He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Him who knew no sin is Jesus Christ. God come to earth in human flesh. Where did God make Jesus sin? He was made sin for us when He took our place by dying on the cross at Calvary. When we believe God about Jesus Christ, He makes an exchange. 
Jesus takes our sin upon himself. He withdraws the sin from our account, if you want to stick with the analogy. He takes it all out, takes it upon himself, dies for it, and then in exchange he puts in his perfect righteousness so that God looks at me and he declares me righteous. I am now able to stand in his presence. He hasn't made me righteous. He does that throughout the process of my life until finally I'm glorified when I'm with the Lord. He declares me righteous. He says, Gene, you have the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Having believed in Him, you can now stand in my presence. You and I are friends. It's amazing. We are therefore declared righteous. We are saved. Now let me clear something up. We've just read in verse 1 through 5 about a remarkable promise, several really, that God made to Abraham. Is that what he believed? What therefore caused God to credit him with righteousness? Is this when Abraham was saved in Genesis 15? No and no. Abraham believed God prior to these events. Number one, the form of the verb used in this verse suggests a prior belief. According to the most competent language scholars, the verb reads... Abraham kept on believing the Lord. And in the New Testament, Hebrews 8, uh, 11, 8, for example, we learn that Abraham first believed God when he set out from Ur towards the promised land. He believed God and God credited it to him for righteousness. Now, it may seem a minor thing, but it's a very major point because some come along who believe that salvation is by uh, uh, faith plus works. And they try to say that Abraham was working, 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 you know, to please God from chapter 12 on. And then in chapter 15, he also believed God. And so it's a faith plus works. Not true. It's a misreading of this. Abraham believed God when he was first called out of Ur of the Chaldees. He was saved by God's gift of righteousness through faith. Faith isn't a work. Faith has no merit. It's just an agent by which we believe God. You are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. God takes your sin that you can't do anything about. He gives you His righteousness that you could never work for or earn. And He who began that good work in you will perform it and complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Have you believed God? I didn't ask if you believe there is a God or even if you believe that Jesus is God. You have to believe God exchanged His righteousness for your sin when He died in your place on the cross at Calvary. If you haven't done that, you're not only not the friend of God, the Bible says you're an enemy of God. You're fighting God. But the Holy Spirit is drawing you into the presence of the Lord. If you're not saved today, if you're not the friend of God, you can know Christ. You can give your heart to Him. Look to the cross and cry out to Him. If you have believed God, then God is your friend. He's your shield. He's your exceedingly great reward. And you and I are really in this flow to be able to affect untold millions of people. Really. You just don't know. How does that reveal itself? You just need to be willing to affect one or two people around you. Wherever God has strategically placed you. At home or at work or wherever you find yourself. You just need to go out every day listening to the Lord. Hearing from the Lord, being filled with God's Spirit, yielding to that, being used of God, serving God, offering your life a living sacrifice, however you want to put it. And when anxiety comes, when stress comes, when worry comes, when discouragement comes, the Lord will rush to you and say, Gene, 
I am your shield. I know you feel pinned down, bruised and buffeted. All my servants feel that way, but I am your shield. Nothing can penetrate the shield around you. And Gene, I am your exceedingly great reward. I know you want other things, but someday you'll understand that there is no other thing. There's nothing else but Jesus. Right now, there's the flesh and the world and all these things that happen, and, you, and you're always kind of like an Abraham. Lord, give me Eleazar. Give me this. Let me do that. And the Lord keeps honing it down. And he says, Lord, Gene, are you going to be satisfied with just me? Look at the things I've already done. Let me do the things I want to do. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for these things. They're precious, precious in your sight, precious in our sight. Uh, we pray, Lord, that we would receive them and, and uh, make them our own. Uh, Lord, I want to talk to you the way Abraham talked to you as the friend of God. And I know some, it almost sounds disrespectful, maybe more to some than to others, Lord, but you're the one who called Abraham your friend three times. And one time you said he was your friend forever. And we joke about it. We use this BFF thing, best friends forever. But that's what you said about Abraham. And then Jesus, you looked at the disciples and to, threw them to us and said, I, I called you servants. Now you are my friends. And Lord, I want to have this kind of relationship with you and hear from you and receive from you. And I know that the brothers and sisters here do as well. And so, Lord, we ask you to work in what your spirit is working out in us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.